Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, everyone. This is Lindsay, one of the hosts of Yield Crime. Just wanted to give you a heads up that since you were listening to an earlier episode of Yield Crime, you may notice that the audio quality isn't the best. It does get better, I promise. If you are willing to stick with it, great. If you'd rather start with better quality audio, I would suggest skipping ahead to episode 19 when we purchased newer, better audio equipment. And on that note, thank you for listening and on with the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Ariel Cooksey, host of Malice. When violent acts occur, we tend to think the predators are monsters. Surely no human could do such things. But if we're honest, only humans commit malicious crime. And if you're like me, you want to know why. To find out, join me at Malice, wherever you listen to podcasts. Bye. And welcome to Ye Old Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Single. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm tired. It's a very sleepy, sunny day. On a Sunday. On a Sunday. So... We haven't done one of these in a while. Okay. We're going to do another con artist today. Ooh. Snake oil salesman. It's going to be a snake oil sales lady this time. Ooh. Snake oil sales stress. Sales stress. I like it. Right? Is it a word? No. Is it now? Yes. It's still not. It's not going to catch on. I am a sales stress. I'm a sales stress. What do you sell? Snake oil. <laughs> Just kidding. Essential oils. <laughs> <laughs> Buy my wares. Join my pyramid scheme. Mm-hmm. We are going to be talking about Princess Caribou. Not to be confused with the deer-like creature. She really went with Princess Caribou? Yep. It's not spelled the same. It's spelled C-A-R-A-B-O-O. So it's worse. It's worse, yeah. Great. Super legitimate. I'm already on board. Let's get into it. I'm ready. Let's go. So information was pulled from the following sources. A 2017 vintage news article by Stefan Andrews. A 2014 article on jerrywalton.com. A 2011 article on the Jane Austen website. Ooh. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> right. We're branching out. <laughs> into con artists. A 2002 Mysterious People article by Brian Houghton, a BBC local news website, the History Press website, and the book. This is the longest name in history. I'm ready. Caribou, Caribou. The Singular Adventures of Mary Baker, alias Princess of Javasu, who, under the disguises of a footman and a wandering gypsy, proved herself to be a female Bampyfield Moore Caribou. 
on the Harvard Library website. That was the title? That was the title. They gave away the, everything. I know. Why would you open the book? You know everything now. I didn't look it up, but now I really want to know what a Banffy Yield More Carrier is. Yeah, I do too. I'm going to look it up. <laughs> Fuck it. Oh, it's a name. It's a person. What? Banfield Morcaru was an English rogue, vagabond, and imposter who claimed to be king of the beggars. This just keeps getting more interesting. I kind of want to do him next. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> Bookmarking that for later. Like for part two. All right. So links to all these articles will be in the show notes as they are every time. Yep. You're welcome. So to set the stage. Okay, I'm ready. On the evening of Thursday, April 3rd, 1817, a strange young woman appeared in the village of Almondsbury, Gloucestershire, a few miles outside of Bristol. Was it foggy? I bet it was foggy. I hope to God it was foggy. There was a breeze. April. It would have been wet. It would have been slightly damp. Damp. It was damp. This is our first introduction to Princess Caribou, a strange and unusual woman who's more than she appears to be. You don't say... Tell me more. All right. This beautiful woman in her mid-20s was found roaming the road with a turban on her head and wore a modest-looking Eastern-style black dress. Mm. With her, she carried a small bundle of necessities such as a soap and, surprisingly, a counterfeit sixpence. (laughs) Naughty, naughty. She had to buy the soap with something, right? That's how you get arrested. And in an article in the April 28th, 1821 edition of the Western Morning News, they described her as follows, quote, her head was small and of Grecian character, her eyes and hair raven black, her delicate eyebrows finely arched, and her complexion of the rich coloring of a tropical clime. Her small, well-shaped hands indicated both breeding and innocence of any kind of work. She was a trifle below middle height and of the most elegant figure. End quote. I like how she had a small head. I think of something to say. Yeah, like that was, and that was very, it sounded like that was a very enticing trait. Like that was one of the first things that they had, like, get this. (laughs) She's got a small head. Head? Small. Come on, gentlemen. The line's that way. All I'm saying is she's got a small head. Well-rounded hands. Clearly hasn't, hasn't worked a day in her life. Doesn't get much fairer, gentlemen. No. Like, her her eyes were raven as well, correct? Yes. So she had eyes of a demon? She had bird eyes. Demon bird eyes. Ka-ka! And skin like a tropical climb? Yep. Okay, so she had demon eyes, a tiny head... <laughs> And the, the skin of a tree and never worked a day in her life. Yes. I'd date her. What fine breeding she had. Yeah, it sounds excellent. Sign me up. Absolutely. Well, the people of Almondsbury watched as she made her way to the home of a local cobbler. And after knocking on the door, she began to speak to them in a strange language that no one could understand. Through gestures, they were able to determine that she was asking for food and shelter. After they gave her some bread and milk, they turned her away because the cobbler's wife was understandably not cool with some <laughs> random girls to hang at their house for the night. <laughs> I gave you some bread. I gave you some milk. Now fuck off. Right. Like, mm, here's some carbs. I hope you get fat. <laughs> Bye. I hope your head gets bigger. I hope, you, <laughs> I hope you're lactose intolerant. <laughs> Good luck finding anyone. Goodbye. With your flatulence. No digestive biscuits for you. Did you know that? What? Digestive biscuits? Digestive biscuits were originally created to prevent flatulence. Nice. 
Mm-hmm. Notice how they didn't give her digestive biscuits with her milk. Yep. Yeah. Calculated. Kind of like how graham crackers were created to prevent masturbation. So is uh, cornflakes. I love how food is just supposed to cure masturbation, but... Yeah. I mean, maybe if you eat enough carbs, you'll get sad and you'll just stop living. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to feel pleasure in things anymore. I can't move my arms. <laughs> I can't can't reach there anymore anyway. You just can't move your arms anymore. That's it. Congratulations, Kellogg. You did it. And on that note, (laughs) the woman was led to Mr. Hill, who was the overseer of the poor, which meant that it was his job to arrest common beggars, rogues, and vagabonds. He's like, "Mm, you look poor enough. Come with me. (laughs) What? Well, because keep in mind, this was post-Napoleonic War Britain. Okay. So these types of people could be imprisoned or be sent to the workhouse or even shackled and shipped off to Australia. Great. Yes. Sounds not dangerous and terrible at all. Nope. Right. And Mr. Hill had no idea what to do with her. So he took her before the Justice of the Peace at Knoll Park House, which was the home of Samuel Worrell, the town clerk of Bristol and the county magistrate. Okay. And he and his American wife, Elizabeth, offered to open up their home to the mysterious young woman to try and learn more about her background. But since she had counterfeit money on her and they were unsure if she was a criminal or not, they instead set her up with a room at the local inn called The Bowl with two of their servants to sort of like keep an eye on her. Yeah, makes sense. And at the time of her appearance, the people of Almondsbury couldn't figure out where this woman was from. Since she didn't speak English, they tried French to no avail, then Spanish. Mm-hmm. And one of Mrs. Worrell's Greek servants thought that she bore resemblance to someone of Oriental descent, even though apparently she was like super white, but yeah. okay. So they began to think she might be Portuguese. Okay. And then others wondered if she was German, Polish, Russian, or Bohemian. And during this time in history, botanical prints were in fashion, and the inn's parlor held a picture of a pineapple. And this woman was observed pointing at the picture and saying, Ananas, which is the word for pineapple in Greek and several other European languages. Okay. So at this point, Elizabeth invited this woman back to the world's house, mm-hmm. where she took to sleeping on the floor before being shown how comfortable a bed was. Okay. She would stare for hours at any sort of Chinese imagery that was in the home. Okay. Is that common to have Chinese imagery in your home? Apparently it was like a new thing for people to start bringing in like Oriental art and prints and things like that. Like that became more popular as like trade with the East India Company picked up. Okay. And she would even venture onto the roof to pray to her god named Alatala. Alatala? Yes. Wow. That sounds like a sassy Allah. Yep. Alatala. Hey, Alatala. Can you smite this person for me? I'm just so bored. Hey, Alatala. Can I have some pineapples? Alatala. This is fun to say. (laughs) This is fun to say. (laughs) I like it. Sassy Allah. So Elizabeth provided the bulk of the care of this mysterious woman. Mm-hmm. And it was only after she noticed that the woman would continue to point at her chest and say caribou that the worlds figured out that that was what her name was. So that's what they started calling her. Hey, my name's caribou. You know, like the beast. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't try to ride me. It's fine. Right. Or, you know, marry me first. <laughs> Buy me some dinner. <laughs> More than bread and milk. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So Caribou was taken to Bristol to be examined by Mayor John Haythorne before being admitted to St. Peter's Hospital, which cared for the homeless. Why the mayor? Because I can't remember why the mayor had to look at her. 
did he decide who went to the hospital? I think it was something where they kind of wanted to find out if he knew anything about her. Okay. Like if he recognized the language or anything. Because he's like higher up too as a mayor. Yep. He might know her if she's more influential. But he was like, nope, don't know this bitch. And (laughs) she was sent to St. Peter's Hospital. But then after a week... Uh, the hospital sent her back to be cared for by the Warls because she was causing a number of problems. Ooh, what was she doing? She just wasn't listening. She was... uh, She combative? She was being kind of combative. Didn't want to be there. I get that. She's like, I'm higher up. I'm not with these homeless people. Yep. I get it. So Caribou is registered at the local offices of Vagrant. And because everyone was curious about her origins, her popularity began to grow to the point that other foreigners and travelers were introduced to her in hopes that someone could be found who spoke her language. So she basically was being treated like a visiting head of state. Like, because they were like introduce her to all these people like hey do you know anything about her (laughs) yeah what is she saying she's weird we can't figure out what's going on she keeps talking about pineapples i don't know so after a round of inquiry and study at the house on the hill the stamp office and the council house of bristol Mm -hmm. the townspeople believe that caribou was malay and set out to find a sailor who could speak to her in her native tongue so around 10 days after her appearance, a Portuguese sailor by the name of Manuel Ennis mm-hmm. stated that he could understand her language and conveyed to the Warls that she was, in fact, a princess. Wow. He translated that her father was a high-ranking noble in her home on an island in the Indian Ocean, where she had a beautiful garden that she would take baths in, have her hair adorned with peacock feathers, and be carried about on her servants' shoulders. Oh, how nice. Right? Piggybacks all day long. Very uh, Disney princess of her. Peacock piggybacks. Piggyback rides. Peacock rides? And then after a bath, she'd be wet and heavier. (laughs) I mean, she's got the skin of a tree trunk. Who's to say she wasn't? (laughs) Small head, tree trunk. Who knows? Maybe she had bird bones. It was fine. Who knows? She did have raven-like qualities. Yes. Remember demon eyes? Yep, nice bird bones, got it. <laughs> so he continued that her life was changed forever when she was kidnapped by a group of pirates <gasps> who took her on a vessel that sailed the seven seas for weeks. Oh no, there's no peacock feathers in the sea. No, there isn't. Oh God. And one day, as the vessel approached land, she was able to escape the crew in the Bristol Channel and swam to shore on the coast of England. Wow, I didn't know. I didn't even know she could walk because you know she's been carried everywhere. I know you'd think she wouldn't have very strong. Uh, she's like a an athletic swimmer. Yeah, birds don't swim. No, nope. most of them don't. This doesn't check out. So after several days of roaming, that's when she was finally able to reach Almondsbury. And after he confirmed that she was the princess of Javasu, books and maps were quickly procured to determine what part of Asia she hailed from. And obviously all this work made Caribou's ruse that much easier, as she also had access to these same books and was able to observe how natives of different countries dressed, ate, wrote, and behaved. So they basically provided her with a how-to guide for pretending to be from another country. Great. Awesome. And even though Caribou could not speak English, she understood it well enough and used it to her advantage. Mm-hmm. So Mrs. Worrell's Greek servant mentioned that if she was from East India, she would refuse brandy and other spirits as they would go against her religion, which is exactly what she did to keep up appearances. Funny. 
Meanwhile, the Worrells treated her as if she was actual royalty. Caribou would take baths in the garden, have rice instead of bread, drink tea and only eat vegetables, and did everything in her power to stay truthful to the story that had been spun. Painters even came to see her and local newspapers wrote about her. Mm -hmm. She even wrote down examples of her elaborate language, which were sent off to Oxford for analysis. Perfect. Yes. (laughs) Oh, God. This is going to be great. So for 10 weeks, she was a local celebrity and spent time dancing exotically for the magistrate and his friends. She fenced. She swam naked in the lake. Okay. And she used a bow and arrow with exceptional skill. Creepy. Got it. I love how she's like, sensual, exotic, murdery. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Watch this. Ping. So after a while, Caribou became restless mm-hmm. and yearned to travel to America. And one day she suddenly disappeared and returned later that evening with a bundle, her appearance dirty and disheveled. She inferred, because no one could understand what she said, that she dug up her belongings from a place where she buried them when in reality, she traveled all the way to Bristol via the Duchess's woods to her old landlady's home in Lewin's Mead, before running to the quay to look for a ship. And unfortunately, all of the ones headed to America had already set sail. Right. So Caribou had her things from Lewin's Mead sent along to her father's in Devonshire before she began to prepare for her grand debut in London. Perfect. And having been to London before, the woman posing as Caribou knew that she wouldn't be able to fool the people of the metropolis. Yep. So she took great pains to make herself appear quite ill to avoid the journey. Interesting. She found that a small amount of black currant jelly would make her tongue and mouth look as if she had contracted a case of typhus fever. Gross. Wow. Okay. Yep. Awesome. However, before she had to put her plan to delay her trip into action, her story had already begun to unravel. Okay. You see... Mrs. Worrell had received a letter from a Dr. Wilkinson who relayed the story of how a gentleman from Almondsbury recognized a quote-unquote supposed French girl who he had treated at the local public house two days before Caribou's arrival. Interesting. A woman who had drunk his brandy and water, something that someone who was of true East Indian descent would not have done, according yeah. to Mrs. Worrell's Greek servant. Interesting. And not long after this letter had arrived, Caribou noticed a marked change in Mrs. Worrell's behavior, which set her on edge. Mm -hmm. And fearing that the jig was up, she set off for bath. And on the way, spent the night with a very old couple who apparently had no idea who she was as they found her mode of dress very confusing. (laughs) And disconcerting. Yeah. I mean, she showed up in like a turban and like a weird Eastern looking outfit. Yeah. No. And if Caribou thought that arriving in Bath would put her in the clear, she couldn't have been more wrong. As upon her arrival, she was immediately recognized in the street by a Mr. Carpenter, who sent word to Dr. Wilkinson right away, fearing that she had robbed Mrs. Worrell. Funny. So while this was happening, Caribou was taken to the Pack Horse Inn, where the ladies of Bath hurried in to spend time in the presence of the Princess of Javasu. Great. The ladies went to such extremes as kneeling before her, taking hold of her hands, wiping her royal face, and even covering her with a rich lace veil. Gross. That makes me really mad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And upon leaving Bath, Caribou was sent to Bristol, where she was received in the parlor of a gentleman. Ooh, scandalous. The same gentleman who had treated her on Almondsbury Road and her former landlady from Lewin's Mead. Hmm. Immediately, she sank to her knees, transforming from Princess Caribou back to her true self, Mary Wilcock. 
So now I'm going to talk about Mary Wilcock herself. Yeah, like who's Mary Wilcock now? So Mary was born in 1792 at Witheridge in Devonshire to poor but industrious parents. Six of her brothers and sisters had died young. And from the young age of eight, she was taught by her mother how to spin wool, even though she found more enjoyment driving the the farmer's horses on neighboring farms. And her mother sent her to Exeter after finding her a place of service as a maid there. But Mary soon left after eight weeks. And after one week back home in Withridge, she began a life of vagrancy, often shredding her clothes into tatters to look to invoke more sympathy from people. Great. Cool. So from Exeter, she made her way to Taunton and attempted to hang herself with her apron strings before she thought to herself that it was a sin and stopped. Sure. Because, you know, apron strings will definitely 100% guarantee that you'll be successful in your endeavor. Yeah. Okay. This is her account, right? That's her account. Yes. Okay. And on the road to Taunton, she met a man who felt sorry for her, who gave her enough money to spend three nights at a local inn. So after this, she headed to Bristol before setting off for London on foot. And on the way to London, she fell ill and was taken to St. Giles's Hospital. Giles's Hospital? St. Giles's Hospital. (laughs) Where she spent a considerable amount of time recovering from rheumatic fever at the age of 15. Oh, damn. So the chaplain of the hospital, a Presbyterian clergyman named Pattenden, set her up with a position as a servant in the family of Mr. and Mrs. Matthews after she was released, where she stayed for three years looking after their children. Wow. She became good friends with the cook of a Jewish family who lived next door Mm -hmm. and took particular interest in their prayers, diet, and the Hebrew alphabet. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And in April of 1812, she suddenly left the Matthews home before returning four days later after a short stint at the St. Mary's workhouse. Her behavior upon her return was eccentric and mysterious. Yeah, I bet. And she left their home for good in autumn of that year following an argument. Good for them. Dodged a bullet. Yeah, no shit. (laughs) In February of 1813... Mary applied to the Magdalen Hospital for Reformed Prostitutes under the name of Anne Burgess, which was her mother's maiden name. Okay. And she began to spin a tale of how she'd been seduced by a gentleman staying at a house she worked for in Devon. Mm-hmm. She told the Magdalen Committee that this gentleman took her to London, but abandoned her after a month. And she was forced to, quote, go on the town, performing sex work until she was given work as a housemaid. And after a few weeks, she dropped the ruse and admitted that her name wasn't Burgess and that she made up the whole story because she needed somewhere to stay. Fair. I mean, if you're homeless, they need a place to live. Yeah. So the officials asked Mary about her family and she told them her father was dead and that if they continued to ask her about it, she would hang herself. Awesome. Wow. What a social butterfly. Right. Fun fact, her parents were still alive. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And she left the hospital in July of 1813. And upon leaving the hospital, Mary disguised herself as a man before making her journey back to Withridge as traveling alone as a woman through the area of... It would be really dangerous. Yeah. Of Hounslow Heath wasn't a good idea. Yeah, I bet. That makes sense. And after entering Salisbury Plain, she was kidnapped by highwaymen who took her to their camp and threatened to kill her after they learned she was a woman. And she was somehow able to beg for her life and escape before eventually making it home in the autumn of 1813. Wow. Her life's really messed up. 
It's really messed up. And it only gets more messed up. Great. I'm ready for it. So Mary's mother helped her secure work for a tanner and leather worker in Crediton, which was a few miles outside of her village. Mm-hmm. She lasted only three months before leaving after refusing to carry any more hides. And after a few starts and stops, she made her way back to London and worked for a fishmonger in Billingsgate. And Mary claimed that in the spring of 1814, she had a relationship with a man named Baker. And after two months, they married and lived together in or around London. Okay. Which is how she got her current name. He left her in London after he went sailing to Calais, promising to send for her to join him in France. And she never heard from him again. How long did that take? Well, in the beginning of 1816, so this is two years later, I found Mary pregnant in London under the assumed identity of Hannah. So I'm assuming they were together for a few years. Yeah. So she was working in London under the assumed identity of Hannah, um, where she was able to find work in a pub working behind the bar. Okay. And on February 11th, 1816, Mary gave birth to a son that was christened John Wilcox, but it's unclear where she delivered him. Hmm. Plus, they didn't keep good records then. Yeah. And probably, especially not if it was an unmarried woman. Yeah. If it was a bastard. So Mary referred to her son as John Edward Francis Baker. And as she had no money, both she and her son were sent to St. Mary's Workhouse on April 19th, 1816, where they stayed until June 17th of that same year. Mary was eventually persuaded to give up John to the Foundling Hospital, because that's where orphans would go, since she couldn't support both of them. Mm. Mary found employment and would visit her son at the hospital every Monday until he died on October 27th, 1816, at the age of eight months. Man. Yeah. That's all terrible. I know. So Mary's place of employment at this time was at the home of the Starlings. And Mrs. Starling recalled Mary telling them her child had died. And even though she was an excellent servant, she was clearly out of her mind. Oh, no. Telling the children frightening tales about gypsies. Great. And obviously, I know that that's not a PC term. It should be like Roma or Travelers. But for the sake of the story and how she tells it, I'm going to continue to refer to them as gypsies. Mm-hmm. Please don't at Same me. Same thing with Oriental as well. Yeah. Like, I'm just telling the story how she told it. This is her tell- retelling her story. So just know that I know that is not the politically correct term for these people. She wasn't even specific about the gypsies. No. So she was sacked and driven from the house in November of that year for setting fire to the beds. Great. Wow. What a comforting woman. Yep. Mm. So Mary may have spent Christmas abroad in France, but she returned to Devon in February of 1817 by coach, which was unusual as coach travel was very expensive at that time. Interesting. So we're not quite sure how she got the money to do that. She met a Frenchman. Something. So after returning to her parents, she let them know that the baby had passed and that she was going to sail for the Indies. She spent 10 days with her parents before she sent her trunk ahead to Bristol, where she planned to catch a boat. But instead of heading to Bristol, she headed to Plymouth, where she met up with some gypsies and traveled with them for a short time before heading back through Exeter to Bristol, arriving there on March 10th, 1817. There's a lot happening year by year. Yeah. This is crazy. A lot of like back and forth traveling and things like that. Like just, Mm -hmm. she's just kind of all over the place. Great. So Mary applied to a captain on the quay who promised to take her if she could provide five guineas and her own provisions for the trip. And that would equate to about 250 pounds today. So not super unreasonable. Yeah, that's not super bad at all, especially since it would have been a really long trip. 
Yep. And his ship would leave for Philadelphia in 15 days. So Mary found lodgings at the home of Mrs. Neal in Lewin's Mead, where she shared a room with a young Jewish girl named Eleanor. And both girls went out begging in the streets during the day. Okay. And in an effort to try and beg for funds in Park Row, where she was getting no attention, she noticed a couple of French lace makers from Normandy and the attention they were garnering with their unusual dress. And that's where the idea of Princess Caribou was born. Got it. Her first victim was the wheelwright's son, who she met along the road to Clifton. Enchanted by her exotic appearance, he was only too eager to help a woman who seemed to be alone in a foreign country. (laughs) And after arriving at a pub, the wheelwright's son bought Mary a steak and a cup of tea. But at this point, she was bored of him. Right. So after spending the night in some lodgings, she gave him the slip, then headed back to Gloucester. And assuming the character of Caribou, she headed into Almondsbury. And that's how she magically appeared. Yeah. So after being caught in her lie in front of a gentleman and her former landlady, who recognized her from write-ups in the newspaper, all this truth finally came out. And although she had been living this double life, she actually didn't commit any other acts that would be viewed as dishonest. It came out that while she was employed in London, she'd regularly send half of her wages back to her parents, even though she blatantly refused to talk about them when asked. Right. Which could be because of a sense of guilt for her actions. Yeah, maybe she doesn't want she didn't want them to be tied to her. And even though it came out that Mary herself was illiterate, she did have a remarkable memory. Mm-hmm. As she was able to recall in vivid detail a recent sermon she'd heard upon her return to Withridge. Interesting. And all she knew of writing, she'd learned from the daughter of one of her mistresses. And even though she could not read, she could imitate writing if she had a copy to use as a reference. Yeah, that's clever. So Mary had spent time in France prior to her arrival in Almondsbury, which is how she came up with her bizarre language. Mm-hmm. But it's not quite clear how her friend Manuel confirmed her identity. They're not sure if she'd somehow bribed him into maintaining the ruse. Probably. If he was like a sailor or a pirate, I feel like if you were given the right amount of money, yeah, you could do just about anything. Yeah. And very understandably, when the truth came out, Mrs. Worrell was furious. Oh, I bet. Because she's the one who spent the most time with her. Mm-hmm. Took care of her the longest. Yep. But she also felt very sorry for her. Yeah. In fact, she and her husband helped Mary make the trip that she longed for to America and set her up on a ship bound for Philadelphia. Are you kidding? Nope. Wow. So Mary left for America on June 28th, 1817, in the company of three strictly religious ladies who Mrs. Worrell had tasked to be her chaperones for the journey. Unfortunately, it was blown off course. And by the time she reached St. Helena, the story of Princess Caribou linked her with the famous Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, no. Yes, because that's where he was being exiled. Oh, God. Okay. So I don't believe a word of this next part, but I found it fascinating and wanted to include it. Okay. So according to the 1877 book, English Eccentrics and Eccentricities... By John Timms, Sir Hudson Lowe, the official in charge of the exiled Bonaparte on St. Helena, reported that they encountered Princess Caribou after she washed ashore. Caribou told Sir Lowe that hers and Napoleon's fortunes were intertwined and begged to meet him. And upon their meeting, Napoleon was said to have been delighted with her and went so far as to intimate that he would put forth a request to the Pope to dissolve his marriage to Marie-Louise to wed the enchanting Caribou. Wow, that's so great. Right? Mm-hmm. She and her small head are the best. Ugh, she's just too enchanting. Obviously, the Pope needs to be involved. Yeah. So despite these outlandish claims, 
Yep. Mary eventually did make her way to Philadelphia, where she spent the time reviving the character of Princess Caribou and delivered theatrical performances on stage at Washington Hall. This work, however, didn't garner her the success she had hoped for, and little is known of how she spent her time in Philadelphia after November 1817, because that's when she stopped sending letters back to Mrs. Worrell. Mm, Got it. Mary eventually returned to England in 1824 after spending seven years in America. Not learning her lesson, Mary revived the persona of Princess Caribou and charged one shilling a person to meet her during her time in New Bond Street in London. Awful. She also traveled to Bath, France, and Spain for a time before moving back to Bristol, where she eventually settled down with Robert Baker, another baker, a man 10 years her senior. Great. And by the end of the 1820s, Mary had given birth to a daughter in 1829 that she named Marianne before eventually finding honest work. She imported and sold leeches to the local Bristol Infirmary Hospital oh, God. and lived to the grand old age of 75 before passing on Christmas Eve in 1864. Wow, that's really impressive at that time. Mary was buried in an unmarked grave at the Hebron Road Burial Ground in Bristol on January 4th, 1865, and her daughter continued selling leeches after her mother's death. A final note about her death was published in a newspaper article stating, quote, The princess hoax lasted till it was discovered to be a romance cleverly sustained by a young and pretty girl. On being deposed, the princess retired into comparatively humble life and married. There was a kind of grim humor in the occupation which she subsequently followed, that of an importer of leeches, but she conducted her operations with much judgment and ability and carried on her trade with credit to herself and satisfaction to her customers, end quote. Interesting. And that's the long and sad story of Princess Caribou. Wow, man. I can't even imagine somebody trying to do that right now. Yeah. First off, like a white woman in a turban, red flag immediately. Yeah. Especially like wandering in England somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That just wouldn't just wouldn't happen the same way again. Yeah. Cool. Well, and it's just, you can tell she has some form of mental illness. Mental illness. Oh, absolutely. Some sort of uh, like delusions of grandeur, that kind of thing. <laughs> And when I started researching this, I didn't think it was going to be as deep as it went. Mm-hmm. Like, as I started researching, I was like, oh, my God, there's a lot more to the story than I thought there was. Crazy. But yeah, it was just obviously what she did wasn't OK. Yeah. But like her life. Yeah. Prior to that was just so sad. It really was. And actually, like after it came out that she wasn't a princess and that she was just this poor cobbler's daughter. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people that were of the lower class really kind of saw her as someone who like... Like an anti-hero? Yeah. Someone who had mm-hmm. like tricked all these upper class people into thinking that she was one of them. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. So for a time, she was almost kind of like a folk hero. Mm-hmm. So... Crazy. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> so this week's um, podcast plug is Malice which is run by our good friend, Ariel Cooksey. Mm -hmm. She's an amazing podcaster, has a fantastic podcasting voice. And her show does these really well-researched and well-written deep dives into these cases that really kind of spin the tale a little bit. So you you can almost see why the criminals do things the way they did it. Mm -hmm. You can almost understand... Where you can almost empathize with them yeah. and justify their actions. 
it's extremely well written. And um, she recently celebrated a huge download milestone. She's a great fellow podcaster. So I highly recommend checking out Malice. Malice. Such a great name too. Mm -hmm. We have another question. (gasps) Okay, I'm ready. So this is from Megan and Danielle of the Crime and Roses podcast. Okay. And they want to know, what is the funny story each of you has about the other sister from back in the day? Oh, boy. (laughs) Man, we could do like a whole podcast on this. Yeah, no shit. Wow. Um, My favorite is the walking on water story. (laughs) Now you got to tell it. Okay. So um, we originally grew up in a very, very small town in Iowa. It's called Hornick, Iowa. Population is what? It's less than 300. It was, it was like 200 people when we were there. Yeah. Um, and we had, um, Sunday school and in the Methodist church there, and we had learned that Jesus had walked on water. And of course, being the bored, dumb kids we are, um, decided we would try to see if we could walk on water as well. And this was in the summer. Um, so my sister and I, uh, there's a six year difference just so you know. So Lindsay, she was at an age where she thought she had it like figured out to like a scientific, like you had it set up. She got um, like logs, like pieces of wood that I could step on. She got my dad's boots so that we would be secure and safe. And then she got a jump rope so she could tie one end of the jump rope to my waist and the other to the bike. And she could pedal me to safety. Yep if needed. So we pedal, like we, we take our bike and we go to kind of an edge of town where there was a crick. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people know what a crick is, but a crick is, um, like a body of water with little to no movement. It's, it's like a very, very, very small river or a creek. Um, it's basically like a tiny tributary. Oh yeah. Um, and this one in particular was disgusting. I think it was completely green. Yeah, it was like mostly like six feet of mud. Yeah, and algae. And And algae, it had like maybe like a thin layer of actual water. Yeah, and so um, I started to get nervous and Lindsay was trying to be my hype woman. And she's like, no, we can do this. Like, we've got this. We've got dad's boots. We're ready to go. And so we tied my dad's boots out really tight. And keep in mind, I'm like, how old were we? around this like I can't remember man it was I wasn't I don't think I was in school yet I think you were four or five yeah yeah I wasn't in school yet and so like having a four or five year old wear their dad's like what size 12 construction boots (laughs) yeah um I put those on and they were really heavy and then she tied the jump rope to my waist and the other end to the bike threw a couple logs and we should have known immediately when the logs started sinking they like weren't even was, logs. They were just like two by fours. Yeah. So we put them down and they started sinking and I was chickening out and you were like, just do it. <laughs> and so I stepped in and I immediately start sinking. Like it's almost like a quicksand like thing. <laughs> yeah. So then I scream in terror and Lindsay panics and she tries to pedal really fast, which um, pulls the jump rope away. So then I'm sinking even faster. <laughs> <laughs> Jump rope. So then she has to get off the bike, grabs me by the arms, 
pulls me out. And by this time I'm like, I'm, I'm a scared sniveling kid. So I'm like scream crying and like can't breathe. And, um, she had the annoying task of trying to calm her sister down. And then we had to bike back. Um, our parents had no idea we, we were doing this. So then we had hosed down my dad's boots, which were these like really nice Australian angle. Yeah. Brand. Yeah. It was a specific type of like emu boot, mm-hmm. uh, which they don't make anymore. And he could never replace. Uh, yep. So we, we hosed him down, we ruined him, and he had no idea how his boots got ruined until I was 18. And we told this story. <laughs> we finally confessed. <laughs> um, I think it was like after my graduation party or something, you were home and we said it and they were so <laughs> But we got away with it. We definitely got away with it. Yep. All right. What's one of your stories? Well, I probably won't. I shouldn't tell the Ken story. No. The Ken doll story. I'm not going to tell that one. too violent. That's a crime story. That's a crime story. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely hurt each other. <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, yeah. Um, I remember this was another one of those days where it was like, you have to remember this was the 80s and early 90s. Yep. Back then, there weren't cell phones. Nope. We lived in a tiny town. We were basically like free range. free range. Like, well, it was a small enough town where there were enough people around that were retired where if something happened, we would just go to somebody's house. Yeah. We could literally go to any neighbor at any point and be like, hey, I need help or hey, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I'm hungry. And then you get like a sandwich. It was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, that doesn't happen anymore. No. I'm like, please don't do that. <laughs> Please don't go to random strangers' houses and ask for a sandwich. It's an awful idea. Bad things will happen to you. Can't guarantee your safety. But mom and dad were gone for some reason. I don't know if it was some sort of like, it probably had to do with the paper. Yeah. And so it was like a rainy day. You and I were both home. Oh no, is this the rain boot? And um, (laughs) after it stopped raining, I was like, hey, we should go jump in some puddles. We had to go get something at the corner store, the general store. I think we had to get milk and you, you were like super annoyed. I wanted to make it fun. Nope. I'm pretty sure we just did this because I was a dumb shit and thought it'd be oh. fun to go jump in puddles. Okay. That must've been another one. Anyway. So we put on our swimsuits. Yeah. In our raincoats <laughs> and our rain boots. <laughs> Didn't we have umbrellas too? Probably. Oh my God. And just started going around town, jumping in mud puddles. Random puddles, yep. And then we decided, hey, let's go to the grain silo. The grain elevator. The grain elevator, (laughs) because there's some giant ass puddles over there. And (laughs) so we go to jump in this (laughs) giant puddle, not realizing how deep it is. Yep. And I think you actually were submerged at one point. I was completely submerged. In the puddle. In like greasy, muddy, oily, oily corn water. Yep. (laughs) Yep. And I like, I think I went in up to like my chin. Like it splashed up and I remember getting like a bunch of crap in my face. And then after that, we came home. We were just like covered in mud, completely gross. Yep. We both got sick. Yep. And I wonder why. sick. We both got really sick. (laughs) Super sick. Like high fever. Oh God, it was awful. I just remember mom yelling at us after we were cleaned up. Yep. We were both just sitting like cowering on the couch. (laughs) 
<laughs> she was like, why did you do this? So lesson learned, kids. Don't jump yeah. in uh, puddles by silos elevator. Puddles by grain elevators. Oh my God. If you can't see the bottom of it, don't jump in it. Yep. That's my life lesson to you. Yep. My life advice to you. Man. I mean, there are... We have so many stories like that. Oh, yeah. Tons of dumb stories. Yep. I was thinking we were going to die being in the pool during a lightning storm. Mm Mm-hmm. And we thought we had a pool floaty above us. And we thought that the pool floaty would save us because the lightning would strike. The floaty and not the us. The floaty and not the water and electrocutes. Well, it was rubber. So we thought, oh, it'll just bounce off. Mm-hmm. Yep. We were terrified to touch the metal ladder and get out of the pool. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, logic. Yeah, it's, it makes total sense. Do you have something good? Um, something good. I don't know. I I feel like, um, like a puppy report. There's some socializing progress with my boyfriend's puppy and my animals, which always makes me happy Mm -hmm. when they get along. Um, we had a first successful full night sleep in the bed. No accidents. Huge deal. Um, and I also found like, I have a really nice hack for desserts, like a crumble dessert. Nice. And uh, I made a blueberry lemon shortbread one. Nice. And it's awesome. And I'm going to definitely do it once we start having gatherings again. It's like an easy way to have, bring a dessert. Nice. How about you? It's a good thing. Uh, so at the time of this recording, we, we're supposed to have our town celebration days this weekend. And because of COVID, obviously, we couldn't have, you know, like carnival. the carnival stuff and all the food trucks and the events that would normally take place during that. Mm-hmm. But they were able to, instead of doing this like big truck event where people could come and like climb inside the, you know, the construction vehicles and the snow plows and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. They did a parade instead, which was really kind of cool. So they would like, kind of awesome. go through town. And for fireworks, they had fireworks last night and they encouraged people to either stay in their cars and watch or they set up these circles all over the soccer field where they were having the event and they were all placed like six feet apart and the circles were big enough where you know six people could sit in it comfortably so it was kind of cool to go and lay on my back and watch fireworks and it was a beautiful night it wasn't too cold wasn't Mm -hmm. super breezy it was cool that's awesome uh, Thomas was saying that's probably the best fireworks show he's ever seen because he was able to actually just like lay down and watch the fireworks go yeah. off overhead. That's true. There's not, there's not many times that you're not surrounded by so many people or cars or other things where you w- would be able to enjoy a fireworks show like that. I remember mm-hmm. we were able to enjoy something like that in Anthem mm-hmm. years and years and years ago. And that was really cool. I remember being able to lay down and look at the fireworks. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Oh, and also shout out to Kent Campa for sending us gifts via email. That really warmed my heart and I loved it. So thank you. They were really cool. That was awesome. He was the first person to do it. Yep. You're amazing, Kent. The real MVP. Shall we? Yes. All right. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com and follow us on social media at yieldcrimepod on Twitter and yieldcrimepodcast on Instagram. You can also email us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Right now, we're trying to get spooky stories for all of our October episodes. Mm -hmm. So far, we have two. 
Yay. So if we can get two or three more, that would be amazing. So if you yes. have a fun, spooky story of some sort, and it doesn't really matter where it happened or what it is, we want to hear it. Absolutely. Just, just email it over or DM us on Twitter. And we'd love to be able to share your story on the show. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, we hope you would consider giving us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. We are now also on Amazon Music. Yay! Which is pretty cool. So you can check us out there as well if that's where you would like to listen. Absolutely. And it just really helps us out when people look at the show and see all the nice things that you guys write about us and about how you like what we do. Makes us feel good. It does. You go into our feel goods folder. Yep. We have one and it's awesome. It is awesome. <laughs> I go there whenever I'm feeling sad. Yep. <laughs> At least someone likes me. It's a good mental health folder. It is. If you want to support the show, uh, please consider either becoming a patron on a Patreon for as low as $5 a month, or you can buy us a coffee. Mm-hmm. Every little bit helps. And we also do have merch on TeePublic. That's super fun. The nice thing about TeePublic is they have sales all the time. So I think in this month alone, they've had like four, like they're going to have four sales. So I think the week this episode comes out will also be the last sale in the month of September. Of the month. So we have lots of fun designs up there. We have a few more that I'm working on that I will hopefully get up in October. So excited. One has to deal with our friend, uh, Alfred Packer. And I am super pumped about that one. That one's going to be a good one. Oh, I'm ready for it. So just keep that in mind. It's always a, a fun, cool way to support uh, fellow podcasters. Like I know a few other podcasters on TeePublic and I bought some of their merch and mm-hmm. it's a fun, easy way to support people. Absolutely. And we'll have links to all these things in our show notes. Mm-hmm. And as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime. Thanks, guys. Bye.